Uh, before I begin, I just want to uh, thank the pastoral team uh, here at First Baptist Church of the Lakes for the opportunity, the great privilege that you gave me uh, to be able to be a part of the pastoral internship. And I want to thank you, uh, the church, uh, for allowing me the opportunity to serve you. May the Lord continue to do his work in this church. And it's a blessing to churches around the world as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this Lord's Day. Thank you for allowing us the privilege to come together as one people to worship your holy name and to hear from your word. This is what we're here to do now, Lord, to hear from you. Just use me as a simple mouthpiece, Lord. That's all I am, but may your word abide in our hearts, Lord, and may we proclaim this out in the world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It has been said that until we have a right view of God, we will not have a right view of man and his sinfulness. We need to understand who exactly we have sinned against before we can feel the wickedness and the evilness of our own sin. Until we know who God is, we will not see our sin against him for as bad as it is. Until we know who God is, we will not know who we are. Many say they believe in God, yet they don't know who he is. They don't know what, he, what he's like. To many, he's just a man upstairs or some type of impersonal force. It's as if everyone individually has their own God. Everyone has their own truth. However, there can only be one true God and only the truth exists. There is only one who is responsible for creation. Only to one will we give an account to when we die. And only one will continue to reign into eternity. It is important that we get God right in this life. And the only way to know who God is, is by his very word, the Holy Bible. From the Bible, we know that God is holy, that he is set apart, he is morally pure, he is all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present. He is the creator, he is the only sovereign, he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. He has never had to learn how to do anything, and he's never had new information come to him. He has never been too light in his sentences, nor has he ever been too harsh or excessive, as he is perfectly just. Isaiah 40, 12 through 15, helps us to contemplate the greatness of God. And as we read earlier, as we sang earlier, who has measured with waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with the span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in the balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands 
like fine dust. This is the infinitely wise, majestic God that we have sinned against, the one that we have betrayed by breaking his moral law, the one whom we were created to honor and worship, we have disgraced and despised. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death and that in the end, some will enjoy eternity in heaven while others will spend eternity in hell. As we will see in this passage today, even as the wickedness of man gets worse and worse, even as man gets more and more evil, God is gracious and preserves a remnant of his people for salvation. Now a remnant is a small remaining quantity of something sometimes described of as what is left after a great catastrophe. Today we're in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8. I titled this sermon, The Wickedness of Man. If you have a bulletin, you will see an outline with three points. The first one, the temptation. The second point, the consequence. And the third point, the hope. And perhaps some of the different interpretations of who the sons of God are in the first few verses of this passage have already started to cross your mind. And I understand that people hold to different positions as to who the sons of God are. Pastor Rolo, when he assigned me this, he told me he wished to challenge me and that he did this on purpose. <laughs> so feel free to join his D group today after the service. <laughs> as we look at our first point of our passage, which is the temptation, we need to identify who the sons of God and the daughters of men are. I will read verses 1 through 2 once more. When men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now there are two main interpretations as to who the sons of God are. The first one is the earliest Jewish interpretation which identifies the sons of God as angels who began to reproduce with human women to produce a type of hybrid offspring. Some believe that this is how the giants came to be. And even within that same view, it is debated whether they took the women in their fallen state or if they had to possess human male bodies. The main argument of those who hold to this view is that in Job 1.6 and in Job 2.1, the angels are referred to as the sons of God. This viewpoint, however, contradicts what Jesus himself said in Matthew 22:30, that angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. The second view, which is the traditional Christian interpretation, and the interpretation that I will be expounding upon moving forward, is that the sons of God is referring to the line of Seth. After the fall of man, and when we get to the first promise of redemption in Genesis 3:15, Eve and the following generations began to wait for her promised seed that would accomplish victory over the serpent. If you, look, if you go back a few pages in Genesis 4.1, Genesis 4.1, after giving birth to Cain, Eve says, I have gone a man with the help of the Lord. The reason why she would rejoice at this is because God had made a promise that a certain he, a male, would bruise the head of the serpent that deceived her. If you keep following along in Genesis 4.25, we read that Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. 
And she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Again, she would have reason to rejoice at this and having another son because it would keep the hope of the promised seed alive. However, she would never see the promise fulfilled in her lifetime as her promised seed was ultimately our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But as we continue looking at the context prior to, uh, to Genesis 6, in Genesis 4.26, we read, we continue in Genesis 4.26, to Seth, a son was born, and people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Again, the promised seed of the woman, the one that would break the curse, is being sought as the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And lastly, in Genesis 5.28, when Noah was born, it is said of him by his father Lamech, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. By looking at these previous passages, as we look at Genesis 6 in context, we see that Genesis 6 is transitioning from giving us an account of the line of Seth to the point in history where God judged the earth through a flood. The godly line of Seth was not godly in the sense that it was pure or without sin because after Adam sinned, as we know, all future generations would be conceived in sin. Psalm 58.3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. And the Bible teaches that by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, and that just as sin came to the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Even though the godly line of Seth is not free from sin, even though they're not morally pure, one could argue that they were a remnant of God-fearing people. God would provide the deliverer, the redeemer through this line. As we see in the genealogy of Jesus in Luke 3, verses 36 and 38, the names of Shem, Noah, and Seth appear. Even with all this, there are many studied theologians that believe and still hold to the view that the sons of God is referring to fallen angels. Regardless of what interpretation we may hold to, we shouldn't be divisive or even doubt if somebody's a truly a believer, if they have a different view than us. At the end of the day, the three times holy God will judge all sin, whether it's from angels, whether it's from humans. God will judge all sin. And we also see that they saw the daughters of men as attractive and started to take them as wives. The daughters of men are the women who are descendants of Cain. Just as God would put enmity between the serpent and the woman, he would put enmity between their offspring, in this case, the line of Seth and the line of Cain. God is the one who created the concept of marriage, and he made it for his glory and to display his glory. It would be good, right, and expected for believers to only marry other believers with the purpose to bring honor to God. God would be opposed to the intermarriage of these two lines so the people would not turn away from him, the one true God. We see a further example of God's will against intermarriage between believers and non-believers in Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 to 4, referring to the Israelites and the Canaanites. It reads, You shall not intermarry with them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they will turn away your sons from following me. 
to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. It's not that God was opposed to the interracial marriages. The reason why he was opposed to this was because these types of marriages would cause God's people to go after false gods, which they were already prone to do. In our modern day, it's very common for once professing believers to walk away from the church, sometimes renouncing faith in Christ to seek after someone that is not a Christian. A marriage where there's a believer with an unbeliever is a marriage that is unequally yoked. And it is a marriage that will be unable to display the relationship between Christ and the church. Practically speaking, it would be a difficult marriage because there will be differences in how the household budget is to be administered, how much time should be dedicated to serving in the church and attending church activities, what type of people they're friends with or have over at their house, and how their children should be educated. Even though the context of 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 15 is about not entering into ministry with, with unbelievers, the uh, principles can be made to the primary ministry of marriage. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 15 reads, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? The differences are clear. These are all rhetorical questions that aren't even bothered to answer because the answer is obvious. Righteousness has no partnership with lawlessness. Light has no fellowship with darkness. And Christ has no accord with the devil. We must remember that friendship with the world is enmity with Christ. We cannot expect to marry the people of the world. Uh, we cannot be expected to marry the world, including the people of the world, and expect to have peace with God. Now, we are going to have unbelieving friends, family, and co-workers, but we must lead them to the narrow gate, not let them lead us to the wide one. We must not follow after their, their false gods. They are our mission field. If we truly love them and we truly care about them, like we say we do, we would talk to them about the only one who can save their soul. And perhaps some of our brothers and sisters that have been or currently are in unequally yoked marriage can attest to the difficulty of being married with an unbeliever. Perhaps they were married as an unbeliever but were saved during their marriage. 1 Corinthians 7 teaches that if a brother or sister is already married to an unbeliever, and they consent to live with them, to not divorce them, because the Lord can use them to save their spouse. We need to be praying for our brothers and sisters in these types of marriages, because it's something very difficult, yet they're being sanctified through it. Moving on to verse 3 in our passage, it reads, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. God's Spirit mentioned here is the Holy Spirit. We know this by the S being capitalized in the word Spirit, as it is a proper noun. And we know that the Holy Spirit convicts of sin and gives life. 
and the Holy Spirit was present and active in the creation of the world. In Genesis 1, we read that he was hovering over the face of the waters when the earth was still without form and void. And also, the Holy Spirit is active when men are made a new creation and regeneration. So by God withdrawing his spirit, men would no longer have life on earth. Just as God's spirit would no longer abide in man, neither would life on earth in the flood. God had decided to give the people up to the lust of their flesh. He said that man's days would be 120 years. He would set a time limit, a deadline. He would give mankind 120 years to repent before he would bring the flood. And there are some people that believe that that's referring to God, like, changing the, the lifespan to 120 years. But if we read ahead in Genesis, men were still living four and 500 years after the account of the flood. In 2 Peter 2.5, Noah is called a herald of righteousness, and in other translations, he's called a preacher of righteousness. In essence, Noah would preach for 120 years without anybody repenting from their sins. Only his three sons, his wife, and his son's wives would be the only humans to survive the flood. We should not just look at the 120 years as a date of condemnation. We should also see it as an opportunity that God gave for men to repent from their sins. And just as there was a deadline then, there is a deadline now. The deadline being Christ's return. We don't know when he'll return, but the opportunity to come to repentance and faith is available to us today. Listen to Matthew 24, 37 through 39. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the days of the coming of Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. There is a day etched in history in which Christ will return. He will return as a judge for all, but only as Savior for some. On that, on that day, there will not be an opportunity to repent. The same one that will judge you in the future is the same one that can save you today. If you have not committed your life to Christ, if you have not come to him, and repentance and faith, you will surely perish. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but by Him. It's not by our good works. It's not by our good morals. It's not by our good deeds. It's not by our religious activities. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Do not be of those in Revelation 6.16 that will call to the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb when he returns. The fleeting pleasures of sin and the lies of this world do not compare to the glories of eternal life with Christ. 
as believers, we'll continue to be tempted by the things of the world and by our flesh, and that includes marital or sexual relationships with unbelievers, but we must fix our eyes on Christ, and we must be holy as he is holy. Continuing with our passage, we read in verse 4, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now the Bible does not give much information about the Nephilim. The fact that there were already Nephilim on the earth in those days and also afterward should rule out the possibility that the Nephilim were a product of the union between fallen angels and women. They're also mentioned in Numbers 13.33 when the 12 spies brought the people of Israel a report of the Promised Land. And in some versions, perhaps in yours and in the Reina Valera, which is the Spanish version that trans, uh, translation that we use, the words giants is used instead of Nephilim. That word comes from the Hebrew root term, which means to fall, which is sometimes are called the fallen ones. The part of the passage that I think we should focus on is that they were referred to as the mighty men, men of renown, which can also mean fame, popularity, or honor. And the use of the words mighty men in this passage specifically is actually a negative meaning in the original Hebrew as the meaning is applied to Nimrod in Genesis 10, 8, and 9. So it's not meant to be understood as honorable or heroic. These were men who ruled over others with aggressive force and violence. In addition to the sons of God, or believers, intermarrying with unbelievers, we also see that men were ruling over the other people with violence, with no fear of God. It's often as we see in our modern day, with governments oppressing other nations, and sometimes even their own people pushing their own agendas. There is no fear of God. The rulers of this day do not seek to rule with justice. They seek their own personal gain. Proverbs 29, 4 says that by justice, a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts tears it down. So these violent and opposing men contributed to the increasing wickedness of the earth. There was no fear of God. They were morally corrupt. They broke God's law willingly and repeatedly. They were their own gods, seeking to impose their own dominion and their own power, just like, we, just like as we see in modern rulers of the day. We now get to the second point, the consequence. The consequence of the wickedness of man. Continuing with verse 5 of our passage, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the hearts of his heart was only evil continually. Whenever we read that the Lord saw, we must remember that he is omnipresent, that he is everywhere at all times. We could see the wicked, he could see the wickedness of man unfold, and the wickedness was not small or minimal, but great. He is also omniscient. He knows all things, even our thoughts, and the thoughts of our, and the thoughts of our hearts, and he could see that the thoughts of the people was only evil continually. 
meaning that these thoughts did not stop. The people had a reprobate mind, twisted and perverted by sin. Their mind, wills, and affections were consumed by evil and by wickedness. Ecclesiastes 9.3 says that the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness. The New American Standard Version says evil and insanity. The deeper you you, uh, sink into your sin and the darker your sin gets, the quicker it will destroy your mind. Sin will literally make you insane and it will destroy your life. It has very real consequences that affect everyday life. We can see examples of sin producing this insanity and misery in our modern day in drug and alcohol and sexual addictions. In Colossians 3, 5 through 6, Paul writes, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Perhaps we may not bow down to statues made of precious metals, of wood and stone, like we like to think of the Israelites back in the day. And that's what comes to mind when we think of idolatry. But do we bow down to any of the sins mentioned in this passage? Do we bow down to sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness? Perhaps you will enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time, but it will, it will ultimately earn you is the wrath of God and eternity in the lake of fire and so forth. Many of us have heard the saying, follow your heart. I recently saw an upgraded version that said, follow your heart, but take your brain with you. <laughs> Perhaps in the world they see that as a good advice. But the Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. We do not need to be following our heart. We need God to give us a new heart and we need to follow his word. If we follow our hearts and take our brains with us, our brains will just be destroyed too. In reality, as a preacher once said, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. What we see here in this verse is the doctrine of total depravity, or as some like to call it, radical corruption. This doctrine teaches that as a result of the fall, mankind is born with the sin nature. We're not born neutral. We're not born good. Even our free will is inclined to evil. Sin affects all of mankind, and it affects the whole man. We are born dead in our trespasses and our sins, and we are by nature children of wrath. Think about what it takes for us to have life, right? It takes God 
for us to have life. It takes God to give us a new heart. The best we can do is behavior modification. That's all that the world can offer you. Behavior, uh, behavior modification and perhaps medications. But the only way we can be truly made alive is in Christ. Continuing in verse 6 and 7 of our passage, it reads, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and they grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. The use of the word regretted can be misleading, even more so in the King James Version. It's translated as repented. Now we know that God is immutable and sovereign. We know that he's unchanging in character, will, and in his covenant promises. Numbers 23, 19 says that God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. And in the King James Version, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. And of his sovereignty, Isaiah 46.10 says, He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. And Ephesians 1.11 teaches that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. So what does it mean when the Bible says, that the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. What the author, the Holy Spirit-led Moses, was providing when he wrote this was an anthropopathic description, which means God is being depicted in terms of human emotions so we can try to understand what he's like. Just like the Bible sometimes gives God human, uh, physical human characteristics, uh, body parts and anthropomorphism when it talks about the mighty hand of God or the outstretched hand of God. An anthropopathic description seeks to try to describe God's emotions. The reformed position is that God experiences emotions very differently from the way humans do in the sense that God's emotions don't change. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith says this of God. He is invisible and has no body, parts, or changeable emotions. And part of God's unchanging emotions is his hatred for sin. God does hate sin. And we learn from Scripture that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Habakkuk 1.13 says that God's eyes are too pure to approve evil, and we, he cannot look at wrong. It's not, it's not saying, uh, saying that seeing evil weakens God or it serves as some type of kryptonite or that it comes to him by surprise. Rather, because of his holy nature, he will not dwell or abide in the same place as sin. Sin must be so bad, so repulsive in the eyes of God 
that he would destroy the work of his own hands before he would let the earth continue to be defiled by sin. The Lord said that he would blot out man from the face of the land. That he would literally wash them away. That he would literally drown them to death. God would drown every single man, woman, and child on earth except for Noah and seven others because of their sin. Sammy Renihan, a Reformed Baptist pastor and author, writes, Mankind reached a height of evil that threatened the extinction of the holy line, so the Lord destroyed humanity to preserve his promise of salvation, and now human multiplication could again serve that purpose. Perhaps the imagery of people and even animals drowning can cause us to think that God is too harsh with the flood. But just as he is the creator, he has every right to do what he pleases with his creation. We're nobody to judge God. We shouldn't be asking why he would do this. The real question, the real question is, why didn't he do it sooner? Mankind had not only completely rebelled against God, but they hated God. Their sin was out in the open. They weren't even hiding it anymore. They were directly opposing and violating the law of God written on their hearts. Romans 1 says that what can be known about God is made plain to mankind since the creation of the world. So no one is without excuse. Mankind chooses to suppress the truth about God and has a tendency to worship the creature instead of the creator. This event shouldn't cause us to question God's justice. Rather, it should cause us to reflect and meditate on how God is indeed slow to anger, merciful, and faithful by the fact that he would preserve a remnant, keeping his promise of redemption alive. Before moving on to the next point, I would like to read 2 Peter 3, verses 3 to 8. It reads, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. This passage describes very well how man thinks in our modern day. Many scoff or mock the idea of the return of Christ and of God's future judgment. 
Many think that Christ will not return at all since it's been almost 2,000 years since his crucifixion. However, we see from this passage that God exists outside of the bounds of time. The laws of time do not apply to God as he is eternal without beginning or an end. It is not a matter of if Christ will return. It's a matter of when. And if you're not found in Christ when he returns, you will perish like the rest of humanity in the days of Noah. We now move on to the last point, the hope. I will read verse 8 once more. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. By beginning with the word but, there's a sharp contrast to the rest of the passage. After reading about all the wickedness going on and about the coming judgment, we end on a hopeful note because there's one man that found favor in the eyes of God. If you keep reading in Genesis 6, you'll read that Noah is described as being a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and it is said of Noah that he walked with God. Now, walking with God is more than just having head knowledge of God. It's more than just thinking about him. It's more than just reading about him. It's more than just talking about him. It's living in obedience to him. R.C. Sproul said, walking with God is living your life in the presence of God, under his authority and to his glory. Noah didn't do anything to earn the favor of God, for he was also a, a sinner and fell short. But God displayed his grace towards Noah. So Noah was also a sinner saved by grace through faith. Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. God doesn't set his eyes on the kings and the princes of the day. He doesn't set his eyes on the mighty men, on the men of renown, on the famous. Isaiah 66, 2 tells us on whom the Lord sets his eyes on. But this is the one whom I look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Contrite means penitence, showing sorrow, being humbled by one's own sins. Noah feared God. He had a reverent fear and a high view of God. Scripture teaches that the Lord regards the lowly and he gives grace to the humble. It also says that he opposes the proud. The book of Proverbs says that everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. So by not submitting to the Lordship of Christ, you're saying that you don't need a Savior. You're essentially saying that you're willing to stand in front of the judgment seat of Christ and represent yourself in court, whether it's when you die 
or on the last day. And if you have sinned at least once in your life, you will be declared guilty. What we need is the righteousness of Jesus. We need to be in Christ. And Christ's righteousness can only be applied to us by faith in him alone. Noah would go on to build the ark acting on his faith. Because he believed, he obeyed. The highlight of this verse is not the faith of Noah, but the grace of God. What comes to mind is Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. The flood account is a picture of salvation as God would preserve a remnant of his people from destruction. And it is from this remnant that the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come. Noah was instructed to make one door. There was only one entry point into the ark. And if you did not enter by this door, you would not be saved. And like the days of Noah, there only continues to be one way to be saved, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ, the promised seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. And just as God shut the door of the ark, preventing anyone else from coming in, there will be a day when the opportunity to come to repentance and faith in Jesus will no longer be, a, be available. So if the Lord is drawing you to him, do not resist. You do not have tomorrow promised. Where will you go if you die tonight? As I get ready to conclude, the three points we saw in today's passage are the temptation, the consequence, and the hope. From today's passage, we can see that we're currently living in the days, in days like the days of Noah, as wickedness is greatly increasing in the world around us. Society may be advancing in the areas of innovation and technology, but morally, there is great decay and decomposition like a dead body. And the intentions of the heart of man continue to be only evil continually. In God's judgment, he displayed his wrath, but we must also remember that God is also gracious, merciful, and kind. Because it was God who preserved a remnant of people. It was God who gave his only son during his ministry on earth, Jesus said that he had come to do the will of his father. And as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he fell on his face and he prayed, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. God himself provided the only sacrifice that could atone for our sins. He reconciled us to himself through the blood of his son. And he did this legally without leaving the consequence 
of original sin, unpaid for, and at the same time, without violating his holy law. Just as it's legal for someone else to pay a fine for you in court and you can go free, Jesus paid for the sins of his people and also, on top of that, took upon himself the wrath of God on the cross after having lived a perfect, sinless life on earth that we were supposed to live but could never. Only God could come up with such a plan of redemption as this. If you're not a Christian, listen to Isaiah 55, 6-7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Do not love the things of the world. Do not be married to the world. All that this world has to offer is condemnation. Be a part of the remnant of God that he has redeemed and preserved for himself. God always preserves his people. He did it before Christ was born and continues to do so now by sealing us with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. If you are a Christian, we must be the Noahs of our day. We must walk with God. We must be preachers of righteousness. And we must preach Christ and him crucified. We must warn others of the coming judgment and tell them of the only one who can save them. We must tell them of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Sermon in a sentence, as the wickedness of mankind increases, God will execute his righteous judgment while simultaneously preserving a remnant by his grace as his remnant, we must walk in holiness and tell others of the Savior. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we have peace with you now because of his blood. Help us to walk in holiness. Help us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers also. Thank you for Christ. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.